I think it's almost customary to start such a paper with a caveat, uh, and I'm going to be no exception. Um, the observations which uh, underpin uh, my paper are tangential to a, a language and oral literature documentation project, um, and were made on the basis of just uh, 12 months of field work uh, in northwest Greenland, where I worked with a subgroup of the Inuit called the Inukhuit. Um, so if these observations uh, seem superficial, uh, it's because they probably are. Um, with such a complex language, one is inevitably uh, still just scratching the surface uh, after a year. Um, in my title today, uh, I evoke the ethnolinguist Del Himes, who explored how people make sense of and negotiate social reality by analysing their ways of speaking. Under the rubric of ways of speaking, uh, Del Himes and John Gumpertz offer a bar pie conception of speech that focuses on the means of speech and the speech community and the speech economy these speakers uh, participate in. Um, Delheim's wish to investigate what speakers can and do say uh, and the context in which they say it. For Himes, speech cannot be separated from the cultural background that shapes its linguistic form, and it is uh, very much in this spirit uh, that this paper has been written. The question... Um, I wish to tackle today is what does the inahui use of verbal and non-verbal language and so-called practices of belonging tell us about how the inahui organise language and experience? I focus on speaking because this is a pseudo-oral culture where the written norm is a separate but related language, standard West Greenlandic, i.e. the language they write is not the language they speak. Um, with just 700 speakers, their spoken language, Polar Eskimo, is a language of glottal stops, and outsiders have described it as not sounding like a language at all, uh, but as a series of sighs, heavy breathing, and broken jerky sounds. I should point out that the word Eskimo is not pejorative in this part of Greenland, and Polar Eskimo is in fact the correct name for the dialect, although it always gets me into trouble. Um, Impressionistically, this is a language that comes from the stomach um, or the middle of the body. Uh, outsiders wishing to learn the language are told that as a first step, they have to learn to make the sounds of a polar bear. Uh, and the Inukhui have a remarkable aptitude and love for this kind of mimicry. The Inukhui have uh, very clear views about what is their language and what is not. Certain phonemes have particular salience in language, acting as identifying agents. If one cannot get certain basic sounds right, it cannot be considered that one is speaking the language, irrespective of how good one's vocabulary is. One such sound is the euphala plosive. Um, if you don't articulate this sound with the innermost organs, it can result in the substitution of g for k. Initially, this was an error that I made frequently uh, and was labelled gudadok for making this mistake. This is a contemptuous expression uh, that grouped me with young children who have not yet mastered this sound. Polo Eskimo uses a small phonemic inventory and wordplay is common. With such a ribald sense of humour, the Inukhui invite the stranger to confuse a plethora of near homonyms such as Annak, excrement, Anak, woman, Annak, woman's older brother, Anak, grandmother, Amik, skin or hide, Ammauk, great-grandparents, uh, etc. 
Yinohui take great pleasure in reciting constantly the various names for male and female genitalia uh, and words for anus, all of which are almost homonymic. (laughs) The structure of the language endows a so-called phonological word with considerable expressive power. I should point out that the notion of word is quite ambiguous in this language, but a word can be identified by its prosodic contour. A polysynthetic language such as Polo Eskimo with highly morphological with uh, highly productive morphological patterns, presents new uh, grammatical algorithms all the time. Being an agglutinative language, words are formed by gluing lots of segmentable affixes together to create what would be sentences in English. With a high degree of morphosemantic plasticity, the language is alive with an ontological dimension uh, and open to new shades of meaning through the addition of potentially several hundred independent affixes and several thousand affix combinations. This means that language has the ability to surprise, uh, perhaps through the unusual uh, compounding uh, of affixes. Not exactly neologisms, as new words are not being coined in any way, these lexical innovations, which are based on stems and affixes already used in a language, conjure up elaborate images through concise morphological packaging. The combination of stem and multiple affixes is poetic, as the meaning is so densely packaged, um, there is a sense of improvisation and the emphasis is on the focus of expression. One can communicate a lot by not saying very much because there's relatively little grammatical and morphological redundancy. The Inahui tend to speak in very emotional, emphatic terms uh, and to speak like an Inahua requires a presupposed emotionality. This manifests itself in the morphology where they have a distinct predilection for using the long, drawn-out, and onomatopoeically apt emphasizer affix dohua, which means much or very much, and the colloquial reduplicative adverbial affix pa 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 pa, meaning a lot of. Everything seems to be big, everything seems to be very big, very hot, very cold, etc. As an example, uh, a conversation proceeded along the following lines um, in November, a time when it was unseasonably mild and when the sea ice was struggling to form. Two hunters wander into my hut, remove their shoes, and sit down at the table silently. After a long silence, a hunter leans out of the window and beckons the lead sledge dog over by making a clicking noise from vibrating his tongue against his lower lip. Something like that. Um, I offer my guest coffee, and both hunters sit in silence, but raise their eyebrows. After approximately 10 minutes of no talk, Hunter A exclaims, Giek, hot, it is hot. Hunter B responds, Giek do hua, it is very hot. Hunter A, e, Giek do hua, yes, it is very hot. And Hunter B, e, yash yo hua, yes, very much so. When making a statement in conversation, uh, interlocutor B will often respond to interlocutor A's comment by repeating the noun and then adding such an emphasizer affix, as in this example. Similarly, the affix hua, meaning big, is added to almost every noun and reflected in their own demonym, uh, inohui, which means the big or great people. There is a constant appeal to this kind of emphasis, and this is reflected in shared Uh, exaggerated gestures frantic hand pushing in the air to refer to something harmonic down there 
implying it is in the far distance, even if the referent is a hut at the bottom of the settlement. Such statements and gestures are typically followed by the speaker seeking constant agreement through the repeated question, Ein, Ein, isn't that so, isn't that so? Consensus-orientated discourse and congenial fellowship in a small remote society with a high intimacy language is a social imperative. Losing face is potentially dangerous as it might result in social exclusion in a place where there are few exit options. It is such recurrent tonalities and conventionalised modes of expression and gesture that bear the stamp of a common cast of mind, to quote Keith Basso. The use of multiple affixes facilitates lexical semantic precision and a degree of specificity that shuns generic words. A way of speaking that has a significant value in a pseudo-hunter-gatherer society where the animal has to be located using as few words as possible. Hunters navigate their way between these places using an elaborate system of demonstrative adverbs which are used to direct the listener's attention quickly to the nature and location of an object. Um, there's no generic word for seal, for instance, but the word ipigato refers to a seal that dips its head down while the rest of its body remains on the surface. In such a society, there is a premium on specific knowledge and less need for abstract concepts. Subsistence hunt- hunting must have influenced Inohui ways of speaking. Elderly people told me, in plain matter-of-fact fashion, there was not much need for language in the olden days. By this, they meant that language was used directionally. I am going out hunting, I am doing this or that, but there was little debate or discussion about anything. In a context of affixation where a basic stem is qualified semantically and grammatically in very complex ways, the language is structurally far from static, allowing one to create new words that have never been uttered before and that could never be found in a dictionary even if there were one. Moulding organically words to precise thoughts through the use of highly productive morphological patterns. For example, one could add seven derivational and inflectional affixes alongside a clitic to the verbal stem hag to create the 60-letter word uh, I can show you the grammar of this word at the end if you're interested. Um, and so he had probably begun to be completely deprived of anyone to turn to. That is a word that a story letter used when trying to account for the suicide of his friend. Like the ice, the spoken word, with its complex morphological forms, is always changing in unpredictable ways, and thus its meanings are seldom commoditized. The same meaning can sometimes be expressed 12 different ways. As such, in Polar Eskimo, one does not just take down words unthinkingly from the mental shelf and reproduce them. Instead, one thinks about the realities we talk about, to quote Austin. As an example of this, in the months of... May and June 2011, I was living in Sidiopoluk, the northernmost permanently inhabited settlement in the world, with a population of 59. During my stay in the settlement, I spent many an afternoon talking to a Japanese man who had come to northwest Greenland as part of a scientific expedition 40 years ago. Ikua Oshima was in his 20s at the time, and he decided there and then not to return to his homeland, choosing instead the life of an Arctic hunter. One afternoon, he came round with a gift of some fresh musk oxen meat, and over a cup of coffee, I asked him why he chose to stay. He looked out of the window, eyes fixed on his dog team skulking on the sea ice, and after an unfeasibly long silence, Ikua uttered one word with a great sense of purpose. 
ehumininaho yamahunga. The word ehumininaho yamahunga comprises the stem ehumini, meaning thought, followed by three derivational affixes and one inflectional affix. Na means in order to, ho, open to, yama means want, and hunga is your first person singular indicative. I can show you this word at the end if you're interested. He was telling me that he chose to live in the Arctic because he wanted his mind to be open to thoughts. This is a whole sentence in English, but one word in Polo Eskimo, and the meaning was explained morpheme by morpheme, a difficult undertaking for the informant. In this case, it was, however, possible. Being a native speaker of Japanese, Ikua had, like me, had to learn their language and had attempted to do so by learning the stems and affixes in the way that I had. He was able to conceptualize the form and meaning of the individual affixes because large parts of the language comprise what Sapir called condensation symbols, which are richly packed with non-arbitrary meanings as opposed to referential symbols, which characterize many non-polysynthetic languages whose form-meaning relationship is arbitrary and conventionalized. Um, the man-nature inter- interdependence that appealed to Ikwa could be captured in the morphology of their language. Words reflect arguably through their mere form the deeper structure of the Inahui worldview. If you take the word for sun, hakinak, it is made up of the base hekit, which means to splatter or to splash forward, plus the affix nak, meaning the action of. McLean, in an article published in 1990, noted that this kind of word formation expresses a way of thinking akin to the modern theory of Big Bang, which postulates a universe generated by an initial explosion and unceasing expansion. There was a clear holistic organic approach to language and language acquisition, and the Inahui like to remind you that their words are meaningless without context. It is clear that there used to be an isomorphism between language and landscape in a place where words are like the knife of the carver. They free the idea, the thing from the general formlessness of the outside, to quote Edmund Carpenter in his book Eskimo Realities, published in 1973. Language was seen as shaped breath. The words for breath, wind and spirit all come from the same stem, anarai. And breath was seen as synonymous with life because the souls of both animals and humans so-called anehak, were equated with this anarai. In the first half of the 20th century, when such animist thinking, taboo beliefs and shamanic language still prevailed, and when the bond to nature was even closer, the role of language would have surely been more evocative than it is today. Even if shamanic and ritual language have long disappeared, words are for a group that is hypersensitive to sound, still as much sound as they are meaning and the experience of the sound is important in itself. The old word for November is duhadut, which means hearing news from the other camps, and is a reference to the time when the sea ice used to form, the highway that connected all the Inahui settlements along the coast. The significance of sound and hearing is obvious upon entering an Inahua home when one finds invariably the radio on for much of the day. Due to the size and interconnectedness of the community, the voices on Cap York Radio, which broadcast in Polo Eskimo, do not appear as disembodied to the listeners. The familiar voice of the broadcaster is indicative of linguistic intimacy, consciousness and presence. 
To have voice is to have agency, as Bauman and Briggs said. The voice is a powerful metaphor because it can embody iconic properties and indicate particular subjectivities. Knowing the person behind the broadcaster's, broadcaster's voice, the sound of a voice alone conjures up thoughts of kinship and belonging. The Inahui take comfort in that sense of local intimacy. It represents authenticity, immediacy and transparency which assume to inhere in the voice. The immediacy is important, as a radio broadcaster must talk as if his listeners were sitting in the same room. It must conjure up the image of listeners when speaking. It is a self-constructed talk projected under the gaze of the hearers, as Irving Goffman would have said. Voice has resonance, but words have now lost their inherent magical power, evoked by Knud Rasmussen, who was working in the community 100 years ago, when he said that words could be traded. Clyvan and Zona, in a publication in 1985, report that it was possible to buy a formula which was a string of words used, for example, in polar bear hunting. The formula increased the hunter's power of observation. Ned Searles does not consider the value of words, but describes Inuit society as consisting of monologues, commands, and co-present periods of silence and shared experience that enable individuals to develop meaningful, complex relationships. Relationships. With reference to monologues, he surely has in mind storytelling. Stories are related with eyes lowered and told using a distinctive way of speaking, an earthy, creaky voice that speaks in a slow, steady rhythm in an authoritative, uninterruptible tone. Listening to stories, sound becomes an existential phenomenon in of itself again, as Stoller would have said. In a context where the written form is a different codified language and the eye is subservient to the ear, the voice corresponds to acoustic space alone and not a string of linear morphemes running through the mind. Storytelling requires a mastery of the language's paralinguistic features. In the case of polar Eskimo, a rich and never-random repertoire of sighs and groans and a specific mix of intonation patterns and gestures accompanying particular words and phrases. Certain bundles of these features are used when one listens to a story being told. The particular EA has no specific lexical meaning, but is a back-channeling cue to the storyteller that the listener is engrossed in the story and that he should continue. A very soft, breathy and drawn-out huna is a mild expression of surprise, and a certain two-pitched <coughs> low-high groan means, oh, I see, is that the case? Mm-hmm. Storytellers are memory systems, but in storytelling it is the act of speaking in a storied way that is, a, that is as important as the content. According to Rana Villaslau, storytelling is a social humanising occasion, and in this society the familiar, heavy nasal voice brings people together after the hunt. The storyteller's voice conjures up the Arctic environment outside from which the hunters are seeking refuge, sitting together and enjoying the warmth and cosiness of the hut. On such occasions, it is the, the spoken word, but also the non-talk in the pauses that represents the sharedness of basic perceptual experience. The spoken word takes on meaning through local oral narratives and shared experience. But to understand this world requires a negotiation of the spoken and the unspoken. Two hunters meeting on the sea ice might say next to nothing to each other, brew up a cup of tea, and only then begin to exchange the news. 
out hunting on the sea ice, standing at seal breathing holes or sitting in kayaks, waiting for pods of narwhals, hunters would remain completely motionless and silent for 30 minutes or longer. A father will, a father will construct a sledge in silence with his son watching, but will not tell him how to do it. Children are seldom, seldom instructed to do anything, and coercion of any kind appears not to exist. Knowledge is encoded in non-linguistic modes of being in the world, to use Martin Heidegger's phrase. Engagement with things or beings produces knowledge, but not language alone. Polo Eskimo is a metaphorically weak language and with almost no proverbs, and is a community where ways of learning and knowledge are experiential. There is opposition to spoken instruction, and like the Western Apache, according to Basso, the Inahui shun words and disputes where tension, ambiguity, and danger are heightened. In such a situation, the Inahui subscribe to the belief that linguistic constructs actually place boundaries on thinking. Silence does not appear to be structured or regulated as it is in Athabascan communities, where every person has the potential to have power, and because that power might be used against one another, members of the community wish to avoid offending anyone. In northwest Greenland, social values and norms are closely tied to the amount of talk versus silence that is prescribed, and the long silences which characterize so many Inahui encounters do not tend to indicate tension or disapproval, but represent instead the opposite, positive co-presence. But silence is ambiguous axiologically. In a context of male-to-male banter, for instance, hunters might become frustrated if I were silent. Stiffy, nepaicho, naungayo. What a shame that Stiffy is silent, literally without voice. Stiffy was my nickname. Um, an, outsider, an outsider has to learn quickly when to talk and when to remain silent. And in such situations, a male stranger is expected to contribute to the repartee. A person with good verbal skills was seen as somebody who could, who could bring a sense of light amusement to the conversation. Laughter is the centre of any male-to-male encounter where mockery, teasing and sexual innuendo might be used to enforce social solidarity. Human strategies amongst the Inahui are very personal in or- orientation, often explicitly so. As with the Gebeya of the Central African Republic, according to Samarin, silence for the Inahui is considered to be as effective as speech, but that, but that does not make them a taciturn people. Having said that, the Inahui way of speaking is also characterised by what Ned Searles calls <coughs> anti-conversation. Questions are typically ignored, direct eye contact is very minimal, and meaning is created through gestures, silence, and situational co-presence, uh, as is the case with the Athabascans in the Yukon, according to Julie Quigshank. Um, I should point out that traditionally it was believed that a stare or even a glance could penetrate another in stealing good or evil uh, or some kind of alien spirit in that person. The Inahui norms of face-to-face engagement um, and approach to co-presence are in fact diametrically opposed to the Western ones um, and and this can make ethnographic encounters rather problematic. Silence is not seen as negation or non-talk um, but instead it is non-verbal communication, just as gesture is. As with the Amish, according to Adam Yavorsky, silence takes over some functions of verbal formulas. 
Silence replaces speech in the most verbal act of greeting and is sometimes used when meeting strangers. After an hour or so, with very few words spoken, hunters might suddenly get up at the same time as if there had been a non-conversational paranormal prompt and go down to the shore to, to, to check their boats. These signifiers, which are not uh, expressed verbally, can act as a form of conversation. The same might be said of dream sharing, which used to have a strong collective and social dimension in, in a hui society. In most encounters, speech is used in a careful, measured way because it is believed that words can do harm and it is easier to undo silence than it is words. A local healer told me that spoken language is a prison. Literally, spoken language locks up. A Wittgensteinian description, perhaps, by which he meant that verbalising limits thought and potentially complicates unnecessarily a situation. Their anti-essentialist philosophy dictates that some things cannot be known, that one cannot arrive at a final definition, not through words at least, and thus the response to most questions is, I don't know. Words are not used as tools of debate or as a means to talk around things. Instead, words indicate a speaker's intentionality and possess agency of their own. Up until 70 years ago, conflicts were settled via drum duels or satirical singing matches, a form of public ridicule based on words where the loser was the one who was the most insulted. Today, on the winter solstice, disguised epiphanic figures, so-called middadud, who are effectively symbolic strangers, enter people's homes and are to remain silent. If they speak, they risk making fools of themselves. It's imperative to understand the dynamic of this non-talk, of which gesture plays an important part. Merleau-Ponty said that language is gesture, and that could be no more true than in this community, where it is facial gesture and voice quality that lend the spoken utterance its illocutionary force. To quote Austin, Raised eyebrows means yes. Pinching one's nose at the top means no. The ubiquitous shrug of the shoulders means simply maybe. The tightening of the lower lip against the bottom row of teeth so that the tops of the teeth are showing with the jaw moving back and forth laterally in a quick rolling motion, expresses, I am teasing you. Non-verbal conversation is characterised by a distinct commonality of facial expressions. As well as these culture-specific gestural substitutes for language, gestures are used constantly to show navigation routes, to mime geographical features and ice formations, to summon dogs, and to describe a woman's body shape. The Inukui organise language and experience through storytelling, ways of speaking and meaningful situational co-presence, but also through their relationship to the environment. The Inukui relates their local cosmos through a discourse, almost an ideology, of ecological monistic thinking, a phenomenological embeddedness in their sense of place. The natural environment is not understood as a separate ontological category, but as, a, as an extension of the human psyche expressed by the Inukui through the word hila, meaning mind, consciousness, weather, and the natural order of things. As we saw with the example of Ikua, Ikua Oshima, thought is not considered in this part of the Arctic to be the product of man, but is the product of the forces outside of man, and these are forces which he must engage with. When the weather was bad, hila namangitcho, 
which in their terms typically meant when there was mist or fog, so-called buyok, or low-dense cloud, giving a feeling of oppression or closeness, people would often complain of headaches. The Inahui still share a social memory scape, to use the term uh, coined by Mark Nuttall, of the area where they live. Geographic knowledge is experiential and shared amongst the hunters through storytelling out on the ice and mental images and sounds of remembered places. For the older people, a fjord is more than just a fjord. It is a confluence of historical events tracing their previous peripatetic lifestyle. The high degree of semantic specificity results in the sense that the language for these geographical features is interwoven into the details of this memory scape. Belonging is, of course, also expressed at a level of social interaction too. In such small, homogenous societies in very remote locations, the parameters of belonging are so well defined that to be an outsider in some way will soon lead to gossip. Social life is governed by a rigid, unwritten code. <coughs> the Inuhui are concerned with maintaining what, what, what one might call their own dense networks of belonging. By a network of belonging, it is meant a network with a few nodes representing branches of an extended family, typically, that constantly reassert their kin links with one another through various modalities and practices of social belonging. These include intensive visiting and various other mechanisms such as naming, celebratory gabimiks, and the toasting of shared birth years. A gabimik is a ritualised social gathering held on special occasions such as birthdays and where everyone is invited to. The geography of Greenland is conducive to what one can call unique networks of belonging because places are bounded. Unlike any other country in the world, this peculiar topography enforces certain patterns of intensive community interaction because it is relatively difficult to leave these thinly populated settlements. On the largest island on Earth, 55,000 people live dotted around the edge in small towns and settlements unconnected by road. In these, in these remote communities, ontological primacy is assigned to the group, not the individual. Existence is ostensibly relational, and in, in a Hui society, identity with family and kin provides much-needed security, as Boas observed in 1888. The objective in such a society is to be rooted in a structuralised whole in which one has an unquestionable place. This whole is the meaning of life. If this place becomes questioned, perhaps because of some activity, his ontological security is in doubt. Belonging is therefore a social imperative. To belong is to be part of the collective consciousness that defines the community, which is the permanent and perpetual condition of things. Social or familial connectedness and spatial attachment converge in the notion of belonging, which is inherently tied to identity and the differentiation between us and them. This rootedness in their surroundings creates an existential framework which governs large parts of their lives and their overall philosophy. The Inuhui belong to the landscape around them more than it belongs to them. It is not a relationship expressed in terms of ownership and certainly not in terms of personal ownership. Personal ownership extends to clothing, but not much else. Place identity for the Inukui does not mean belonging to a specific settlement either. The sense of belonging is anchored instead to the Nuna, for the occasional one with political ambitions, the Inukui Nuna, and the shared experience of hunting. 
Nuna is the surrounding physical and spiritual environment, including the sea ice, the mountains, the air, the animals, fish, and even souls and memories of events and people who lived in the past. Its associations are both spiritual and physical, and the nature of the bond reflects this. There is an intimacy with the Nuna, the local cosmos or the total habitat. Implicit in Nuna is a strong sense of the interconnectedness of human and natural communities, and great pride is taken in this primordial relationship with nature. It is the spiritual value of the Nuna which their ancestors have occupied. This identity is also socially constructed through the identification of certain characteristics seen as particular to that region and embedded in the Nuna. These would include hunting practices, hunting narwhals from kayaks using harpoons, eating of certain traditional foods which are peculiar to the outer settlements, polar bear, narwhal, and givia, fermented little orc in particular, and of course their language, whose aberrant phonology makes it inaccessible to most Greenlanders. Eating this food is a way of reinforcing the oneness of the group and the sense of relatedness, connecting oneself historically to a specific cultural landscape inhabited inhabited by one's forefathers and to the shared culture of hunting. Hunters share game amongst one another according to complex rules depending on the hunter's level of involvement in the catch. No hunter is left without in a society where there is a clear disdain for unshared individual wealth. The Inahui subscribe to an egalitarian ideology and are reluctant in a place where criticism, criticism is not tolerated to make moral judgments on other people which might be seen as individual criticism. Modalities of belonging are practiced through various mechanisms, but principally through networks of bular. The word bular means visit, and the Inahui spend their days going from one hut to another, sometimes visiting the same family member four or five times in the same day, even if there is absolutely nothing to say, no news, no gossip. Much of the time was simply spent discussing who had been visiting whom. The Inukui are the ultimate social beings. The number of visits an outsider receives is the barometer for how well his efforts at integrating into the community are succeeding. Boas, writing in 1888, describes nomadic intersettlement visiting patterns for the central Eskimo. With a much more sedentary lifestyle, these visiting patterns have now been superimposed onto an intra-settlement framework. Dubula, a ritualized process, is the most defining social institution in this part of the Arctic, and in the smaller settlements, this intensive socialising can become overwhelming. The smaller the place, the stricter are the parameters of belonging, the more suffocating these reaffirmations of belonging can become. In a settlement, of Civis, in a, in the settlement called Savisavik, social integration took on a fascinating dynamic, as out of the 40 inhabitants, no fewer than 16 were bachelors, or angachukduk, and thus the number of visitors a bachelor would receive on some days reached absurd proportions. I should point out that bachelorhood is the source of endless jokes in these communities. <clears throat> After having spent the entire day ice fishing with Karkuchek and having exhausted all channels of conversation, the moment I got back to the hut, he would come and visit. Apparently, the Inukui never need time to themselves. Bula is a kind of formalized way of sharing, once one, be- once one begins Bular relationships with people, and there is an, there is an unsaid obligation to, re- to maintain this reciprocal arrangement. The purpose of these visits is co-presence, 
which is essential and underpins Inahui's social organisation. In particular, there is a need for very regular face-to-face contact between members of bilaterally extended families, where there's a high degree of mutual assistance and which are the cultural and social units of production. It is in these remote, autonomous communities with one cultural setting where there is a particularly strong tendency for, for people to monitor each other's sociability. Every member is closely acquainted with everybody else's personality and behaviour. Public opinion is an effective guardian of social morality. Personalities loom large in a small place. Identities were publicly allocated to families as well as individuals. The Dunneks were considered aggressive and confrontational. The Gangaks introspective and philosophical. The Kuyakichoks successful and outward-looking, and thus treated with suspicion by some. I should point out that the so-called Yantalorp has an important role to play in northwest Greenland, where individual success is frowned upon, as it is believed that this can, uh, as it believed that this can and should only be achieved collectively. Close observation of each other's behaviour is facilitated by the spatial arrangement of houses dotted around the shore. Movement in such a place is constantly recorded and reported first-hand, or more commonly second or third-hand, in encounters in subsequent days. With constant use of the ablative, allative and locative cases, conversations are framed in spatio-temporal terms, with an agent always coming from somewhere or moving towards something. Indeed, the case system serves almost entirely to describe spatial relationships. An encounter with somebody in the settlement will typically begin with the question, Ginamut, literally, to whom are you going, with the mut affix marking the allative case, followed by a demonstrative to confirm the location of the house. All the houses face the frozen sea, and thus these visits are in public view, and one is seldom granted privacy of any kind. With binoculars sitting on every windowsill and with 24-hour daylight for four months of the year, any form of clandestine socialising would be more or less impossible in this treeless environment. It is in this context that such a small but intense social world develops fuelled by incessant gossip, often insinuating sexual relations between people, obscene jokes and ridicule. The Inahui take comfort in the localness and total familiarity of their life world, where everybody knows everything about his neighbour. Locally criticised emotions such as anger and jealousy, which play an important role in uh, Inahui society, are negative emotions of place. They are sentiments that people do not want strongly associated with the local environment, but that, that is not to say that they are not. Evaluations of others' emotional dispositions are assessments of others' positions in societal space, of others' connectedness to the community. Those who are not accepted into the settlement communities would normally leave. Others who had left the community and tried to move back many years later were not accepted. Life in the settlements is characterised by this very small scale of life, constantly reaffirming family interconnectedness through a discourse of kinship and relatedness. This is a place where one might expect to encounter a strong sense of belonging, but perhaps not the apparent need to reaffirm it. The conversation at these visits turned invariably at some point to kinship, and the complex familial genealogies which are recited to the visitor in great detail. The mutual familiarity and interconnectedness is a matter of pride. By making kinship the key subject matter of a conversation, the sense of relatedness is constantly reinforced and the need to be part of this familial web, familial web is overwhelming. Close kin provides the most reliable support network and ideally one should be surrounded by close kin all the time. 
Strangership is something unsettling and would represent for Yinahui isolating individualism. Those who left the community for other parts of Greenland spoke of how uncomfortable they felt to be surrounded by strangers, i.e. people they, had no, uh, they did not have any kin connection to. Belonging can connect, but also exclude. If one were, if one were made a social outcast for any reason, one might become a kvitdok. A kvitdok is a mysterious supernatural wanderer who has been perhaps uh, shamed or rejected by the community and leaves the settlement for often a hidden cave on the shoreline, unable to live any longer in society. Before I arrived in the community, uh, a man whose wife had left him moved out of the town and lived down by the shore alone in a tent before he hanged himself. He had lost face and become an object of contempt, a metaphor of rejection. People thought that he had become what one might call a modern-day pseudo-kvitdok. It's significant, perhaps, that the word for commit suicide, iminotdok, Literally, it means literally somebody who goes into oneself and breaks, breaks the bond of belonging. If one is not part of the kinship net- network, the barriers of belonging can be insurmountable. The Inukui have forged an exclusive identity for themselves. It is a society that is implosive in this regard. People were introduced to me by the kinship term more often than by name. Communal and familial identity precedes any sense of individual identity. Those who were not originally from northwest Greenland were highlighted in discussions. There was, al- there was also a distinction between those who could claim a Canadian or Baffin Island heritage and those who could not. To an outsider, the use of some of these kinship terms can be quite puzzling, such as when a boy is named after a dead relative, another means of maintaining the continuity of the sense of belonging, but this time between the living and the dead, the people and the nuna where the deceased are buried. The name, or Atchek, is the most important cultural identity marker of Yinohui, connecting the Inuk to ancestors and the cycles of the living and the dead. It is clear from every encounter that the Atchek has, has a very special significance in this society. It is believed that a child does not become a person until he or she receives a name. The name is the link to the soul, the so-called Danek, and, the, and the, namesake, the namesake name can be recycled lots of different times, creating lots of different embodiments of the same ancestor. As Valerie Alia explains, the naming procedure is part of the grieving process and creates a whole new web of bonds where a mother embraces her child and calls her mother, or when a child gets a new sibling because the newborn child is the embodiment of the ancestor who has the sister of the girl the other girl is named after. To an outsider, the complexity of these kin relations, which are as much socio-cultural as they are biological, can be rather challenging, especially so as the link between name, soul and identity is so intimate that new names seldom develop. In addition to the recycling of names and multiple usage of kinship terms, which conjure up previous socialities, the Inukui tend to have six names (coughs) as well as nicknames. These names aside, if the Achek is not passed on, the soul wanders around with nowhere to rest. It is taboo to mention the name of a dead person until the name has been recycled. Name avoidance rules are strong, as I discovered subsequently when there were suicides in the town. Um, I spoke earlier about storytelling as a way of speaking, but it is clear that stories constitute very much a way of belonging too. For the telling of stories takes the listener to places 
which are diachronic testaments of the Inukui interaction with Nuna. The landscape for the Arctic hunters is mnemonic, a trigger for the telling and preservation of the stories, and memory is a way of articulating the relationship between community and landscape. From the stories, one can infer that for the Inukui, land and kinship are the most important attachment points for memory. Stories tie families together by evoking kin relations and genealogies that are situated in the landscape, which is full of the personality, personality traits associated with the people that lived and travelled through there, a microcosm for human sociality in such a thinly populated place. The rich descriptive imagery of Inukui place names found in the stories and mental maps informs you of land and sea use through their semantic transparency and embeds the Inuk in the, in the memoryscape. So a metonymic toponym, such as Kamavik, means the place where hunters lie in wait for sea mammals. Havichivik, the place where you find iron, or Ugelehelek, a place where one finds Arctic hares. Such place names are what Bakhtin calls chromatopes, places where time and space fuse, charged with symbolic significance for the community. The names of the geographical feature and the events that the stories and place names situate merge in the consciousness of those travelling through the memoryscape. In any one locality, an individual is surrounded by a relational network of marked places that identify potential resources, stored supplies, stories, and historical events in the record of the land. Place names can become active agents of identity, creating contextualised feelings of attachment and showing how the Inukui and their kin have belonged to the Nuna. I would like to now move towards some sort of a conclusion. The Inukui use culturally salient verbal and non-verbal ways of speaking to mark a distinct commonality of expression that might seem alien to the outsider, but which is the byproduct of their hostile environment. Silence, semantic precision and conciseness facilitated by the morphology of Polo Eskimo, storytelling and male-to-male banter, all to a degree, all to a degree feed into the communic- communicative strategies in a pseudo-subsistence hunting community where the social and personal imperatives are to be accepted and thus be able to hunt most effectively with a supportive kin group. This requisite social cohesion is constantly reaffirmed through various idioms of socio- social association a discourse of relatedness and through recurrent and reciprocal modalities of belonging, such as visiting, recycling of names, celebration of birth dates, and through a shared philosophy defined in terms of an all-embracing phenomenological relationship with the local cosmos. These are the felt and experienced uh, substances of belonging, to use Anthony Cohen's phrase, that underpin such an ethnography of locality, Hunters negotiate their social reality via these mechanisms and belief systems and by travelling through this rich semiotic landscape where events and narratives of belonging are indexed through place names etched onto mental maps. Despite very considerable social upheaval in these communities over the last 70 years, these ways of speaking and belonging appear to be for the most part constant. But their holistic ecological philosophy is now facing a considerable challenge the land's reference points are losing their dynamism and are becoming less meaningful because for reasons of climate change, restrictive hunting quotas and the appeal of a more sedentary lifestyle, the nature of the Inukui's interaction with the Nuna is in a state of flux. Marcel Mose described Inuit social life as symbiotic, as the Inuit were forced to live like the animals they hunt. 
This was the case for centuries, but is now, with the onset of climate change, barely possible. The disappearing sea ice means they can no longer reach many of the animals whose movement patterns have become unpredictable. The Inukui have always defined their sense of belonging to the Nuna as a form of symbiosis, but this relationship has been fractured and will arguably leave the Inukui defaulting to more Cartesian ontologies when describing how they relate to place. Thank you.